welcome to Episode 71 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today not by Catherine Lotriante, who uh, has suffered uh, a retinal tear, uh, uh, but uh, uh, by uh, a guest commentator in the form of David Anderson, Queen's Counsel at Brick Court Chambers, uh, who was named and has drafted a, a, a report as the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, uh, a position he was appointed to by the uh, Home Secretary. He has uh, uh, extensive experience uh, representing governments and private parties in front of the European Court of Human Rights uh, uh, and uh, um, was uh, uh, given uh, uh, clearances to write a report that's uh, nearly 400 pages long, uh, if I remember, uh, a very detailed discussion of all of the terrorism and cyber law issues uh, uh, related to terrorism. Uh, so, uh, David, thank you for uh, getting on to talk about this re- report. It's good of you to have me. I'm looking forward to it. Should be great. Uh, uh, also uh, uh, today, our regulars, uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. And by Alan Cohn, formerly with the DHS, where he recently served as the Assistant Secretary for Strategy, Planning, Analysis, and Risk. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started. Uh, um, it's, uh, I guess, uh, for old time's sake, we should do one last, hopefully last, uh, this week in Snowden. Uh, um, uh, why do you keep, why, Stuart, I'm curious, why do you keep thinking that, that each week is going to be the last week in, uh, this week in NSA? Well, you're just going to keep saying it. I am, I, 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 hope springs eternal. Uh, uh, I, I would love to see them uh, out of the headlines, and I keep thinking that uh, this story is on its last legs. Uh, um, you know, people long ago stopped paying attention to three quarters to eighty percent of the Snowden stories that uh, they've had to go pedal uh, to foreign papers uh, in order to get uh, uh, coverage. Uh, uh, and um, surveillance reform has passed uh, Congress and. Uh, if there are additional um, uh, changes to the law, I'll be kind of disappointed because most of them are dumb and irresponsible. Uh, uh, so that's my that's why I'm hoping that this is the last of the uh, stories. But you're right. Uh, uh, I, I have, I'm having to eat my words many times over. Okay. So uh, the and 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 Michael, I don't know what you think of this story. Uh, the Sunday Times reported that uh, uh, the. Uh, 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 MI5 and British authorities have concluded that the uh, Russians and the Chinese have decrypted all of Snowden's files uh, uh, to the point where they've had to evacuate agents uh, uh, whose names they believe have comp- have been compromised. Uh, was all anonymous sources, not a lot of detail about why they believe that this was uh, decrypted. You can imagine many circumstances in which that would be pretty obvious. Uh, uh, and uh, But they don't give us enough detail to uh, allow us to draw the conclusion that, yeah, that couldn't have happened unless the files had been decrypted. Uh, um, uh, but uh, it clearly was an official leak. Uh, lots of uh, anonymous sources saying, yes, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have this data, and it's a, an intelligence disaster for the U.K., um, which would certainly make it one for the United States as well. Yeah, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's true, um, but as you say, I don't think we know enough to really evaluate it. But what we've been saying since the beginning of this, the Snowden affair that um, his claims that he securely encrypted all his information so the Russians and Chinese could never get at it, it was just absurd. Um, yeah, you I, know. Uh, that, that, that was always a joke, uh, and the idea uh, that... Uh, the journalists he gave it to could continue to protect it was also a joke. Uh, um, one of one of the uh, Snowdenistas uh, was uh, stopped at the uh, airport uh, in, in the UK, and he was carrying the password to some of the files on a little slip of paper in his pocket, uh, uh, which that's certainly secure. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it is highly likely. What, what's interesting is this 
puts a lot of attention on something that people have not paid much attention to up to now, which is that uh, it, more than half of the files that Snowden copied, uh, according to the uh, uh, U.S. government, had nothing to do with surveillance. They were all DOD files about uh, military matters, uh, and that's all gone, too. Yeah, well, his you know his whole claim from the beginning that he was doing this to alert Americans to what was being done on their behalf and how their privacy rights were being infringed and all that stuff. I mean, you know, just every revelation, every new revelation seems to really show that he just released uh, all sorts of information that had nothing to do with the privacy of Americans and had everything to do with sensitive operations abroad against countries that. You know, even the most far left or most far right libertarian people would think, yeah, we should be doing surveillance against those targets. Yep, and he spurred a debate in the United States uh, with exactly one of the documents he released. Uh, so that's one to the good and uh, 1.77 million to the bad. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, uh, moving on uh, uh, to uh, more China news, uh, if nothing else, uh, the OPM file hack, kind of surprising to me, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, has caught the imagination of government in a way that all the other attacks has not. Uh, uh, and um, people are really up in arms. Uh, there's a lot of follow-up uh, evidence of this uh, or stories on this, uh, um, even though to those of us who follow the issue, it's completely unsurprising that OPM wasn't able to keep an elite group of Chinese hackers out of the uh, uh, out of its files. Uh, uh, still, the consequences are pretty staggering. Uh, uh, I don't know, Michael. Uh, your files are in there too, I assume. Uh, uh, as long well, as I haven't, go I haven't gotten a, I haven't gotten a letter yet. And, you know, my my government service ended uh, over 14 years ago, so. Um, uh, I'm not sure if my stuff is in there, but I think, you know, it's, it's the very fact that government employees' own information is, is at risk is what, what drives this issue home for everybody in Washington. Um, you know, you think about the stuff that's in an SF-86 or in uh, other forms you got to fill out to get a, uh, you know, a, a security clearance. People are really nervous about what's in there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's all not financial it, it, information, but it's all the stuff that you really want not to be public. Yeah, I, a lot of people. It's also true that you can the 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 White House can tell the other government victims of these attacks now don't oversell the problem, don't get people uh, unduly alarmed. They can't say that to the unions, and the unions are making hay with this one, uh, 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 demanding compensation and expressing shock and chagrin, and uh, this needs to be made up to them in some way. Um, not not a surprise, but that gives more attention to the victim side of this than you ordinarily would get with a government hack. You know what I found interesting about this? This is the government's target. You know, in the same way that target captured people's imagination because of the size and scope, ah. when ma- massive breaches of, of private companies had not, there have been breaches of government agencies, real serious breaches of serious government agencies for years. Um, and what I find interesting about this is that the OPM's response in terms of its public statements is not much better than targets. It was $4 million, but then, then a couple of days later it's $14 million. It was one database with personal information, and then a few days later it's the SF-86 database. And it underscores the challenge that everybody has, whether you're in the government or the private sector, in trying to make public statements about something when the facts are still evolving. And, you know, it underscores why it is that whoever you are, government agency or, or private company, you need to rehearse for the event before the event happens. Because once you find yourself in it, no matter how, uh, uh, even if you're OPM, when you find yourself in it, it's very hard to handle it correctly. Yeah, I'd say especially. I think it also points out it's this kind is of Alan now, right? Yes, sorry, this is Alan, and I, and I and I, as my my government service ended um, a little bit more recently, I'm a little bit more attuned to where. But where you haven't gotten an email is. either. Have you? I have not. I, you know, I wonder if they really have the emails of departed officials. Yes, I wonder as well, and I and I'm trying not to imagine where all my information is right now and what it's being linked to, <laughs> et cetera. But I do think it, it following up on Jason's comment, it is kind of that perfect storm of massive breach outside the the basic walls of what uh, people had been thinking about in terms of federal government breaches so it's not the state department it's not uh, one of the one of the defense agencies but it's a rich trove of national security information 
Um, and it demonstrates a lack of some very basic hygienic processes or basic network structuring. Um, and it brings out all of the worst of the internecine, I don't want to do this because you're just because you told me to do it or I haven't done what you told me to do before. So, and, and you, you know, let me pick up on that uh, because I'm hearing from people who say, uh, well, isn't this DHS's screw up? Uh, and as the most recent uh, DHS alumnus, uh, let me direct that question to you. And I would say this is a great, this is a great indication of, of, why this problem is not just easily pointed at DHS. Because in this instance, this is a case where DHS, OMB, uh, were actually given more authorities by Congress mm-hmm. to tell other federal agencies what to do. And we're still seeing the dithering and the, well, I'll do that if I want to, or I'll get around to it, or when it's budgeted, instead of, no, this is the intention uh, it's undercutting DHS's ability and OMB's ability to really prevent these things from happening. So if you were uh, in charge of uh, um, the investigate, if you were Jason Chavitz, uh, uh, you might say, I want to see the correspondence between DHS and OMB and OPM because somebody's going to be fired because something didn't happen that should have happened. I want to see everything that DHS and OMB told OPM to do last summer. Yes, and everything that OPM said that they said in response to that between then and now. All right. You're not the boss of me is still the first first role of Washington. It's the name of the game. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, so you would have thought that this was going to result in uh, uh, the information sharing bill uh, passing uh, uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, I, and um, uh, Majority Leader McConnell uh uh, in keeping with his inclination to uh, uh, do, uh, you know, brinksmanship, uh, said, fine, this is really important. If the House has passed it, we'll just stick it on the defense authorization bill, and uh, uh, the president uh, who wants this bill will have to sign the defense authorization bill, which otherwise he has been talking about vetoing. Uh, and he couldn't get 60 to do that. Uh, so we are back sitting around uh, waiting to find a vehicle to get CISA um, uh, passed in the Senate. Well, it's interesting. It's showing that this really kind of is apples and oranges. In a sense, CISA is a debate that should have happened years ago, an issue that should have been put to bed. Information sharing and liability protection is table stakes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the fact that we, can't, that we can't get it done now is astounding, but also shows that we've we're we're many steps down the road. And I and I have to say, this is this is your privacy lobby at work. It's the privacy guys, uh Rand Paul, Mike Lee, uh uh the guy from Colorado whose name I always forget. Uh is it Colorado? Yeah. Uh there's a there's there's a no no, Nevada, Hellman. Uh, um, they voted against it. They wouldn't have made 60, but they would have made 59. Uh, and uh, uh, there was massive resistance from the Democrats on privacy grounds. So, and I think that's important. And I think that somehow we've got to get through this because this is three years ago's debate. But it also does point out um, that the government's got to go beyond this fascination with information sharing. We've been, I think. You've yeah, but talked everything, about this before. everything you want to do in cybersecurity can be characterized as an attack on privacy. The next step is you have to watch, you have to look for uh, ways for uh, unusual behavior uh, on your network. Uh, you've, not, you've got to watch every keystroke and say, is that a keystroke of a human being who's doing what the, that human being usually does, or could it be a bot inside or a, a hacker inside my network? Uh, that's part of modern uh, uh, control over uh, networks. But that means that somebody, DHS, I guess, uh, or possibly a decentralized set of people, is going to have to uh, maintain that kind of monitoring. That's a privacy violation if you're worried about privacy. Uh, anything can be characterized as, as that, that that actually improves security. Yes, and I think you're right. This could be an endless debate, an endlessly circular debate that Congress could either choose to have with itself or could choose to move past and, and, do, and, and put this to bed. Well, it, it won't move past it until uh, the privacy guys pay a price for their insistence that the government needs to be an Amish village on, on cybersecurity. Uh, all right. Um, 
and uh, uh, in keeping with uh, uh, Michael's reproving me for hoping that uh, we're done with NSA news, uh, uh, there were several amendments that passed the House. Uh, uh, Representative Massey and others proposed amendments that were designed to uh, uh, prevent uh, uh, NSA from searching um, uh, inadvertent or byproduct collection of uh, uh, foreign intelligence that also ha- contains U.S. persons. Uh, um, there was uh, a proposal to say that NIST could not work with NSA on any uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, standards. Uh, uh, they all passed and were adopted into the appropes uh, bills, uh, and so Everybody is hoping that uh, uh, this time, perhaps more successfully than last time, that the Senate will uh, uh, refuse to adopt all this and will send it back to the uh, House missing these uh, 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 amendments, uh, which weren't put in by the appropriators, and therefore the appropriators probably will be glad to give up in uh, uh, in conference. Uh, but it's a it's a near thing. These these are dumb amendments that were agreed to in the. 10-minute vote-a-thon uh, uh, last year, uh, and which now have sort of a built-in 300-vote uh, uh, margin in the House. Um, Bitcoin rules. New York uh, ha- has now proposed new Bitcoin rules, uh, and Jason, you talked about that in a paper saying, yeah, there's some stuff good and some stuff bad here, if I remember right. Yeah, I did, Bo, though before I give myself a plug, um, people should read the Christian Science Monitor. Alan had a post uh, last week on uh, what the government could do to improve cybersecurity in the wake of hacks like the OPM. So um, I'm going to give Alan a plug. Too. Well, 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 we'll see if we can get, get two minutes on that uh, as soon as we finish okay. up with what you're All right, well, Then I'll be, I'll be quick. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we're writing a lot about Bitcoin and blockchain and financial technology issues on the Steptoe Cyberblock, so I hope people will We'll go there regularly for more um, of our thoughts on these issues. But uh, about two weeks ago, New York uh, finally completed the two-year uh, rulemaking process that, that culminated in the issuance of new, what they call bit license uh, regulations, which are licensing uh, licensing regimes specifically designed for Bitcoin businesses. Um, and there's it's a mixed bag. I, I write a, a lot about this in the in the post on our blog, but. The short version is that, you know, the good news is that regulatory clarity is good for business, is good for investors, and, and sort of validates, further validates Bitcoin. Uh, and the process that, that New York De- uh, Department of Financial Services engaged in was a laudable one. They actually took seriously the comments they got, and they got a flood of them. Um, and the, and the subsequent drafts and the final draft reflect their uh, thoughtful consideration of those comments. Um, the biggest concern is, is what the, the impact of the rules will be on startups, whether there's enough of a, of an on-ramp, as they say, for startup companies. So many of the companies getting in the space are embryonic. And uh, and New York's goal was to balance the protection of public safety and prevention of money laundering and, and protection of consumers with the desire to foster and not stifle innovation. And time will tell whether they drew the lines in the right place. Uh, and, and some of that may have to shake out as the rules are actually applied. So we'll see what happens. Well, good. And um – you, I'm sure you've got a special rate for startups that, uh, that need uh, uh, help navigating the rules, too. Uh, yes, I'm sure we can work something out. All right. Uh, and uh, uh, so while we're, while we're uh, talking about people's uh, publications, Alan, uh, uh, what, did you, what were your takeaways from the, uh, uh, from the op-ed? Yes, and I will just return the favor. I think that, that we all concluded that, that Jason had written the, the best summary of those bit license rules and really commend people to, to look at that for for federal government cybersecurity, I just think, and it's illustrated by this conversation about uh, information sharing, we've got to get put that to bed because we've just got to move much, much faster than this. And so the three things that I laid out were we got to scrap the federal acquisition system for cybersecurity. It doesn't work. It takes too long. It's too cumbersome. It doesn't let the government be uh, nimble enough. Got to get venture capitalists into the game. They're doing this already in Silicon Valley. They're doing this for the biggest companies helping to formulate and understand requirements, helping to screen technologies, helping to get companies in front of people who need them, and then really fully, fully empowering DHS and OMB to do what they need to do, uh, to direct what they need to do, to access what they need to do uh, to, to really secure federal civilian networks. 
No, it sounds, sounds, sounds reasonable. I, the government's IT procurement systems don't work very well. So this is really just a subset of how bad it is, uh, but with the stakes much higher. Exactly. If, if your IT purchases don't work, you just, you know, you, you lose a generation of technology. Here you lose all your data and maybe the next war. Uh, uh, okay, two quick questions, uh, uh, two 30-second uh, 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 reviews. Uh, Connecticut has an extraordinarily elaborate new set of demands on private, uh, the private sector for protecting information. Michael, um, what's the most striking departure in the Connecticut law from, from what people have been thinking uh, they were legally required to do up to now? Well, it, it, they amended the, the general breach notification uh, statute to impose a 90-day limit on, on when you need to notify both the state AG and affected individuals. But the, the more striking part of this new law is the, the really detailed requirements for state contractors that handle confidential information on behalf of state agencies and also uh, health insurers. Very, very detailed. Health insurers, for instance, have to use multi-factor authentication, limits, uh, requirements to use encryption, uh, limits on ability to store information on portable devices, uh, all sorts of specifications on what has to be in your comprehensive data security program. And, and we're starting to see these sorts of very prescriptive laws coming out of more states now. I think this is we're going to see the snowball start to roll faster and faster. More states are going to be doing this. You know, I, I didn't hear anything when I was looking at, or when, as you were describing it and when I looked it over that I thought was wrong uh, from a security point of view. But it makes me uneasy because five years from now, these these rules are going to look stupid. Well, that, and that's always been the, the uh, pushback from industry. Don't legislate on what we should be doing because as soon as you do, it's going to be outmoded, even if it's if it's a good idea at the time the legislation was passed. But I had the same reaction. It's all sort of basic stuff, um, but the fact that they get so detailed, I mean, it seems like we have the, the, the spectrum ranges from laws that say, on the one hand, you know, have reasonable security to laws that say you got to use multi-factor authentication and you have to, you know, you have X, Y, and Z uh, sorts of firewalls and, and um, intrusion detection systems. Uh, and it seems to, to me that the Really, the sweet spot is somewhere in between, but we haven't quite seen that sweet spot hit yet. Yeah, well, you, you don't you, you ordinarily go to legislatures for the sweet spot. Uh, somebody's somebody's in control, and uh, they're going to do what they want to do. Uh, uh, well, last last point. Uh, uh, Twitter uh, had a fairly well-known uh, uh, and certainly well-covered uh, lawsuit claiming that they should have a First Amendment right to talk about how many uh, 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 National security subpoenas they received. Uh, um, that lawsuit's looking kind of shaky now uh, after the after the judge ruled on some preliminary matters, right? Well, the judge uh, has ordered briefing on the question of whether the passage of the USA Freedom Act moots the lawsuit. You know, as you said, uh, lawsuit's been covered well, and as people will remember, Twitter's challenging the restrictions on what it could say in transparency reports about uh, FISA and national security related process that it receives or doesn't receive, and um, and the judge has raised the question of whether the, the lawsuit is mooted. We'll be able to talk more about it in July because I think all the briefing will be in by the second week in July. But, you know, my off-the-cuff reaction, having looked at the bill and looked at the lawsuit, is that it's not entirely clear whether it moots the lawsuit. One of Twitter's arguments is that it's a First Amendment violation, that it cannot, uh, you know, that it cannot say that it receives zero requests, that, the, you know, the agreement that DOJ worked out with the other providers and that is now codified essentially in the USA Freedom Act allows them to report the number of, of uh, NSLs or FISA orders or aggregate in bands of 0 to 249 or 0 to 499 or 0 to 999, uh, but requires you to start at zero. And one of Twitter's issues is that you have to start at zero and, and it can't actually say that it received nothing. So we'll see whether that... So it, you're right. It does, it, you can't moot a constitutional argument by passing a statute, but you can make it look a lot shakier, and certainly I think this does, because there's obviously some reason for the government not to want to have zero as, as the number, uh, because when it becomes one, it becomes a big deal. Right. Uh, and people speculate on who that one might be. Um, uh, so when Congress says, we've decided that this is the fair way to allow transparency, but not harm national security, 
it's a it's a brave judge that says no the first amendment and my gut over William. Right. Uh, so we'll we'll see. Uh, uh okay, uh, we'll bring this back in uh, July when we've had a chance to read the uh, briefs. Uh, so uh, our our guest today is a distinguished uh, lawyer who was brought into the uh inner sanctum with respect to uh intelligence collection in the UK um and asked to review I, I think his um, Twitter handle is uh, terror watchdog uh, to essentially act as an independent voice and an independent an analyst of existing terrorism and surveillance legislation he's written a report that's uh, almost 400 pages long uh, full of interesting uh, uh, background on uh, uh, the capabilities and activities of the government in connection with the uh, surveillance and he makes a number of recommendations uh, that i thought we would explore because so many of them tie to issues that the U.S. is struggling with as well. So, David Anderson, welcome to uh, to the uh, podcast, and thank you for doing it on short notice. Thank you very much. So, uh, let me let me uh, ask you, how did you end up getting chosen for this position? I suppose to a U.S. audience, um, the closest equivalent would be the P-Club. So, uh, I'm a kind of one-man Club, although with a staff that was able to assist me on um, preparing the report. Uh, the way it happened was that um, you may know that in the UK we have constitutional rights protection, but a lot of it is contracted out to European courts. And what happened last April was that the European court invalidated the data retention rules uh, that were the legal basis uh, for the retention of communications data, as we call it, metadata, as you call it, um, from uh, fixed telephony, mobile telephony, email communications. And we were stuck without a power uh, to collect this stuff in bulk, which the government considered a very important thing to be able to do. I should add that unlike your Section 215, it was not the government that collected the uh, material itself, but it required the communications service providers to collect it. And suddenly they lost this power because the uh, European rule that that underlay it was struck down. So what happened was uh, the government said, this is urgent. We need to give ourselves a new statutory basis uh, to order this stuff to be collected. It's so urgent we've got to get it through Parliament in all its stages in four days. The other parties said, well, we'll cooperate with that, but only if you commission a root and branch reform of all of our surveillance law, only if you give it a really wide remit. Uh, and I was the lucky or unlucky person who was uh, told that I'd be conducting this review. Oh, that's uh, that's fascinating. So this was this was a, uh, a very explicit bargain uh, uh, with the Lib Dems, uh, um, who I assumed <clears throat> expected that they would be around when the report came in, uh, uh, but uh, who now aren't, um, uh, at least in government uh, and, and barely in Parliament. Um, uh, so um, this report comes into a different climate from the uh, climate in which it was commissioned, uh, uh, and that may have an effect on on how many of your recommendations get accepted. <clears throat> well, it may do, although I, I have a pretty good um, feeling so far from the reaction I've had. That I made 124 recommendations. Um, my sense is that there will be a major new bill which will sweep aside the uh, existing law and effectively start again from scratch and that a good many of my recommendations you know maybe nearly all of them maybe even all of them uh, will be adopted okay uh, well that's that that is interesting of course the um, uh, the conservatives did have plans to uh, uh, adopt legislation in any event uh, um, and so in some respects the idea of a uh, rolling those changes that they had in mind into something that uh, responds to your recommendations mm. might might be attractive. Uh, you started. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. you, well, uh, go ahead. I mean, they've, they've got to do something. It's not because, you know, my report is so great. <laughs> they've got to do something anyway because important parts of the existing law sunset at the end of 2016. Ah. Um, so they're going to have to do something in any event. And I think now that they've commissioned this wide-ranging report, now that my advice has been you've really got to um, 
our existing law is just so complex. There are 65 different statutes over which these powers are spread. Uh, I'm not saying it makes U.S. law look simple. I mean, that seems to me pretty complex, too. Uh, but uh, I think there is a high degree of consensus between uh, starting again with something that people can actually understand. That's interesting. Yeah. If you can draft something that people can understand, uh, it is amazing what people will tolerate going into that law. So the reaction, for example, you know, from, from NGOs, uh, even on the very much the liberal end of the spectrum in the UK, has been, well, okay, I've recommended uh, continuation of bulk collection, uh, continuation of, uh, of bulk retention of, of data by CSPs, uh, but if it's all in a law that is democratically debated, if it's written in language that people can understand, and if there is uh, enhanced independent oversight, uh, then maybe we can live with it. That's interesting. I, 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 I'm not sure that that would have, uh, flown in the United States where, um, the people who passed the laws may be from a very different party and philosophy from the executive, whoever controls the executive branch. Uh, so it may be that, uh, mm. uh, uh, trying to do something, uh, overarching in the United States, which we, and we certainly have the same problem that you're, you, you're talking about uh, we have laws that were written in the 1970s and have been patched ever since to, to deal with one crisis or another, um, uh, both from the, the libertarian point of view and from the uh, government point of view, uh, to the point where uh, you – if you hadn't lived it, you probably didn't wouldn't understand what the words meant. Uh, you certainly couldn't understand them just by reading them. Uh, um, but you know, more recently, the fact that you couldn't understand what was going on has become something of a uh, a war cry for those who feel that the laws need to be revised because uh, uh, ordinary citizens ought to be able to tell what is being done in their name when when a uh, an intelligence collection bill is being adopted. So, yeah, the way I, I put it in my report is that the, the, the current law is is understood by a tiny band of initiates. And <laughs> it was interesting when I talked to people in other countries, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, even Canada, you know, you get very much the same picture. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I will say uh, the fact that there are laws that govern this at all and that they are limited to English-speaking countries that have uh, uh, strong rights traditions, uh, largely, not completely. Uh, there are European countries that also have these laws, but they're a little more opaque uh, uh, and a little more general, uh, is uh, something of, a, uh, of an experiment. No one in the 50s thought that uh, intelligence should be subjected to detailed legal oversight. Uh, it was presumed that, uh, mm -hmm. that that was a contradiction in terms. Uh, uh, so this is something of, a, of a, uh, an experiment, and um, uh, uh, complaining that there are laws but they're kind of complicated is uh, sort of a first-world problem. Understood. I mean, we're being pushed on this, strangely enough, um, by the European courts, where they've had their own bad history of surveillance in some parts of Europe in very recent memory, and where the populations, you know, particularly in the eastern half of Europe and in Germany, are actually much more privacy conscious than the population in the UK. But we've contracted out our constitutional protection to the European court, and it is an article of faith of that court uh, that if you're going to intrude in people's privacy, you need to have a law that is accessible, uh, a law that is foreseeable, uh, and each intrusion has to be both necessary and proportionate, which I know is a word that uh, you know the NSA, for example, don't particularly care for. It's a word that's uh, sometimes very difficult for judges and courts to apply, but nonetheless it is the legal standard with which we're fixed. I, I think it's a, it sounds like the words you'd use if you wanted to maximize judicial authority, which, uh, no surprise, uh, mm. would be consistent with the, uh, the view of the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, um, I, I actually, mm. let me just ask you a question. I've always wondered whether the, um, much discussed reconsideration of, uh, the UK's relationship with the European Union, uh, that, uh, has been promised by this administration, uh, is likely to include a reconsideration of its real relationship to the European Convention on Human Rights and the Court on Human Rights. Uh, um, is that even a prospect uh, uh, in the new administration? It is um, something that the new administration announced it was going to do. It was going to recalibrate that relationship and, if necessary, break it off. 
Uh, within a few days of taking office, they announced that this was not a, an immediate priority and it is not going to be in the first year's legislative program, but it's uh, very much uh, still a possibility. Oh, okay. And um, I'm a big supporter of the, the, the court, but you can understand why some people might have reservations about entrusting constitutional protections to a court whose members include judges from, for example, Russia, Moldova, Ukraine, Turkey, all these countries uh, represented in the Council of Europe and all with a say over how these constitutional protections are to be uh, understood. Yeah, uh, it, it, as you say, uh, um, contracting for constitutional protection seems a little unusual in a, a country that's been up to now pretty proud of having a constitution but not one written down. Um, uh, but uh, um, it, it, at any event, uh, it is the law today and uh, um, it has required um, countries to be clear about what the standards are to have statutory standards for uh, uh, conducting surveillance. Uh, you talked a, a, about uh, a variety of other changes uh, uh, that are worth discussing. Uh, right now in the, the UK, national security wiretaps are approved by the uh, 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 Home Office, if I remember right, uh, uh, and maybe the Foreign Affairs Office uh, uh, or Foreign Secretary. Yeah, they're, they're approved personally. Yeah, yeah, they're approved personally by the Secretary of State, who's in charge of foreign affairs, very much like your Secretary of State, and by the equivalent on the internal side. So a very senior government minister approves them, but without any kind of uh, independent judicial intervention. And uh, this has been the case since the 1600s. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, it's, it's one of the things that, uh, that some of, uh, some of the early colonists, uh, didn't like very much about the, the, the country that they came from. Yeah. I've recommended that, um, the time for all this has, has really ended now. Uh, it's got to the stage where the Home Secretary alone, she's a Secretary of State on the internal side. Last year, she authorized 2,345 wiretaps. I'm sure she looked at all of them very conscientiously, but she is somebody whose main job, whose day job, consists of running an enormous Department of State. And uh, I really had to question whether it was the best use of her power to authorize warrants sought mainly by the police in pursuit of serious crime objectives, organized crime objectives, and counterterrorism as well. Um, particularly when, uh, if you look, for example, I, I traveled to California, I went to see the, the big uh, tech companies on the West Coast. A uh, big preoccupation for the UK law enforcement is how can we get these people to cooperate more with us? when we have something that maybe isn't an imminent threat to life, but something, uh, maybe an ongoing terrorist investigation, a serious crime investigation, um, we want their help. We'd like to present them with a warrant that they will honor. Um, and uh, the, the feedback I got from some of them was, uh, you know, how about you try judicial authorization, which is the minimum standard we would expect in the U.S. As one of them put it to me, I, I, I read Secretary of State and I see redcoats. <laughs> yeah. Well, I and you didn't feel that was uh, a kind of American imperialism. I felt it was a bit cheeky coming from a company that had been around about ten years, but yeah, equally I could understand that point. Uh, so I, 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 I'd like to go back to that, but before I do, uh, um, you know what? We've had <clears throat> extensive experience with FISA uh, and the FISA court, and I, I would not describe that as a as a, a, an entirely good experience, uh, um, it, on the liber the civil liberties side, they're viewed as just a rubber stamp, uh, court. Uh, in my view, they have overreacted to that and done some astonishingly intrusive, um, uh, and non-law based, uh, 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 acts, uh, uh, some of which contributed to 9-11. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, part of the problem is, this is not really a judicial uh, job. Sure, uh, reading a warrant and saying, yes, you have enough uh, facts here to justify the warrant does feel like a uh, judicial job. But almost immediately, they start being asked questions about how should we minimize, what should we do with, with this kind of data uh, that very quickly become executive responsibilities. And then the judges are... Uh, enmeshed in becoming administrators, um, and I don't know how you solve that problem. Well, I'm very conscious of that problem. I mean, I visited Judge Horgan and the FISA court when I was in D.C. I also visited the federal court in Canada, which in a way is, is closer to our uh, legal tradition still in, in the U.K., and I also took evidence about the procedures in Australia and New Zealand where they, you know, they tend to employ retired judges to 
to do these jobs as, as commissioners. And I, I think it's right to say that um, no system is uh, perfect. But as we are seeing, we have a tribunal in, in England, the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, which similarly had a very poor name um, on the civil liberty side because it sat in secret, it gave its judgments in secret, um, nobody had very much faith in it. I think the experience was as it started to show the world more about what it was doing, it started to publish some of its opinions, it even started to have some hearings in open, um, and particularly once it started uh, just occasionally finding against uh, the authorities, against the intelligence agencies. Um, the faith in that institution has increased greatly, but I would entirely agree with you that the key is identifying the decisions that are appropriate for the executive and the decisions that are appropriate for a, a, a judge. But yeah. I mean, we're at the stage in the UK, and I, I can't speak for the US, where uh, trust in politicians is um, unfortunately very low. Uh, and furthermore, a, a st we're in a, sta a stage in which... Uh, um, the government are talking more and more about, uh, for example, non-violent extremism. You know, what are we going to do about this? What is the law uh, going to going to say about non-violent uh, Islamist extremism? And although we never had the kind of events that led to the Church Committee in the U.S. in the 70s or the McDonald Commission in Canada uh, a few years later, where you know, the state had been abusing its powers to get hold of party membership lists and and, and so on. Um, there is always a suspicion that, uh, that 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 might be on the horizon, and it seems to me uh, that it can only be an improvement uh, to introduce uh, some sort of independent element into this process, which after all, in most cases, is a business of uh, police wishing to intercept a phone call or, uh, or read an email. Uh, a little hard, in my view, to see how that could be a political decision. Uh, fair enough, uh, although I think, uh, you know, it's going to be cold comfort to the government that uh, the way that the uh, judges will establish their credibility is by ruling against the government, even if the government has worked very hard to uh, only present uh, strong cases. Uh, um, that That's going to uh, <clears throat> incentivize the government to, to put forward some uh, not particularly strong cases as well, uh, just to even up the uh, the win-loss record. Uh, you, you made a recommendation that bulk collection continue, but if I understand you right, when you say bulk collection, you mean what we would describe as data retention in bulk. That is to say that um, uh, uh, Internet service providers and phone companies are required to maintain the records uh, in bulk of all their uh, customers' uh, interactions on the uh, net uh, in case the government later wants to pursue one or two or a dozen of their subscribers. Uh, is that right? Uh, your recommendation was that uh, data retention continue in bulk? Uh, yes, that is correct. Um, that was actually the law across Europe until early last year, that um, CSPs must be required to retain uh, certain categories of data, fairly basic categories. And I was in no doubt that uh, this was useful. Um, I'm conscious, I, I read the P-Club report on Section 215, and, and, and the argument, uh, understandably enough, is, is all about terrorism. Um, but uh, plenty of the examples that I looked at were about uh, online pedophilia, they were about cyber fraud, uh, they were about other types of crime committed on or facilitated by the Internet. And there seemed to be no doubt that if, for example, the investigation started after the time when the companies would otherwise have destroyed their, their data, uh, or if you needed to reach back further and find a kingpin who hadn't been communicating in the days immediately uh, prior to the prior to the crime, um, this stuff could be very useful. I mean, it may be, of course, these comparisons are always difficult, and you have to remember that in in Europe we have very strict uh, data protection laws. <laughs> and I don't know. I know you also have, you have FCC orders in in the U.S. that that may require companies to keep these data for a particular amount of time. Not for but very long. In Europe, really. is if you didn't have a requirement like that, this stuff would not be kept very long at all. It would just be a matter of a few days. There yeah. are European countries that that don't have it. I mean, in Germany, uh, it was declared to be unconstitutional to require the CSPs to keep this stuff. I travelled to Berlin. I spoke to law enforcement there. I spoke to uh, justice ministry and civil liberties groups. And I concluded that uh, they were missing out on uh, data that was useful for law enforcement. So uh, I, that that is quite interesting, uh, um, and I think the the data retention debate here has, um, in part, turned to the extent there is a debate, uh, has turned on objections about the cost of maintaining all this data and maintaining it securely. Did you hear that from uh, service providers in Europe, and uh, what did you? Why did you? No, and the, the reason 
No, I didn't. And the reason is because there is a long uh, tradition in the UK of the government defraying on a cost plus basis the uh, costs incurred by the CSPs in keeping this data. It's expensive for the government, but it means that uh, that, that controversy doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, somebody, I, I remember long ago uh, uh, when asked how they got the national health uh, uh, program through uh, Congress over and how, how, how doctors were prevented from uh, uh, objecting uh, uh, a uh, a high-ranking minister was reported to have said, "Yes, we stuffed their mouths with gold." Uh, and so, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, it sounds as though that's that's what's happened. People say, uh, "Yes, it's expensive, but it's not expensive to me, so I'm happy to do it." But I'll tell you where the co- controversy is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep going. Controversy in controversy in relation to bulk collection, uh, and I suspect this will be even more controversial in the U.S relates to what the government call weblogs, in other words, records of an individual's interaction with the Internet. And the current governing party would like to require the CSPs, although they don't keep it for their business purposes, uh, to keep such records so that uh, it will be possible for law enforcement after the event, uh, once they've begun to suspect somebody, uh, to work out uh, which websites they were visiting, at least up to the first slash, um, and, um, and and make deductions from that. That is something I, I mentioned to the FBI and others when I was in Washington, D.C., and no one seemed to think it was really uh, feasible or possibly on the political agenda in the U.S. There's going to be strong political opposition to it in the U.K. as well, uh, but that's the so-called Snoopers Charter, which is one of the things I was asked to uh, advise on, and what I said is, uh, you know, you haven't built a sufficiently strong evidence-based case for this. You're going to find it legally difficult. You're going to find it technically difficult. That's not to say you shouldn't try, uh, but you're going to have to do a lot more homework uh, before you can present a case to Parliament uh, that could justify them in uh, passing this into law. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So you you essentially gave them a kind of a blueprint for justifying the uh, uh, the new uh, proposal uh, uh, without necessarily endorsing it. Exactly. Uh, last topic I wanted to cover uh, uh, appears under the heading extraterritoriality, uh, but it is the question of uh, uh, when UK authorities can tell principally American uh, uh, providers, that uh, even though they store all of the data, uh, let's say it's a, uh, a Yahoo Mail account uh, uh, for a UK resident, uh, even though the contents of that uh, um, uh, account are stored in Sunnyvale, California, um, a, the authorities in the UK are going to require its production without going through the MLAT process. Uh, And that is something that uh, the government has said it has the authority to do, but hasn't really pushed the point uh, in which they're seeking express authority to do, uh, I gather, in in new legislation. Uh, um, Where did you come out on that? Well, they gave themselves express authority to do it in the urgent legislation that was passed last summer. That Ah. sunsets at the end of 2016. And, of course, a lot of people don't like it. They say it's a terrible example to set to the rest of the world. Uh, no doubt it will be very difficult to enforce this through the U.S. court system. Um, but I'm afraid on rather pragmatic grounds, I suggested that at least as a short-term expedient, they keep this extraterritoriality in place. Because from what I was able to learn about the reaction of U.S. Uh, service providers, uh, there are some which are more willing to cooperate because they know that that legal authority is there. The fact that it's not yet been tested, and no one's actually tried to enforce that order against Yahoo or anybody else, is in a way secondary. And there are companies uh, with a good social responsibility which would like to help UK law enforcement, uh, but are conscious of their customers' desire for privacy and so on, and want the assurance that there is a UK law that purports to apply to them. If they've got that assurance, they're a little more willing to help than would otherwise be the case. So I, I made a very pragmatic uh, mm. case for retaining it. The longer-term solution, uh, it seems obvious, uh, certainly to us in Europe, is some sensible agreement with the U.S. that uh, makes data sharing uh, quicker and more possible because as communications move from telephony to the Internet and as uh, Internet service providers are almost invariably uh, based overseas, largely in the U.S., there's absolutely no question that a, that a capability gap is opening up and a lot of communications uh, are going dark to which we currently or to which we previously 
uh, did have access. And I think that's largely because of the enthusiasm that Silicon Valley has shown for SSL, TLS uh, encryption of the link between the uh, customer's machine and the servers in Silicon Valley, uh, uh, things that used to be possible to um, uh, intercept locally now can't be intercepted locally. The only way to get it is off the servers uh, stored in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, now, the, the, the question that immediately arises is whether the U.K., would be willing to accept the U.S. exercising extraterritorial authority to demand that uh, if Yahoo had stored materials in uh, uh, the U.K., uh, taking advantage of all that cold weather in Scotland, uh, uh, had built a data center <laughs> there, uh, could uh, uh, would the U.K. be perfectly comfortable with the United States extraterritorially demanding that uh, that data be produced from that uh, data center? Well, it's, it's hard to see how they could resist. Um, I mean, all governments are, are capable of hypocrisy, but I mean, that really would be blatant hypocrisy to <laughs> seek to assert it in, in one direction. But of course, the reality is it doesn't work that way. Uh, the data is in California or maybe in Ireland, um, but it is not in, in Scotland or in England. Uh, and maybe that is also one of the difficulties in negotiating this agreement. Uh, it makes sense to anyone who's non-American, uh, but what's in it for the U.S.? What's in it for the CSPs? It's very interesting. The, uh, uh, the Snowden reaction here has led to more data localization. Uh, well, the, the Snowden reaction in general has met, led to some more data localization and uh, more assurances, for example, to Europeans that their data won't leave Europe. Uh, uh, and that means the data is stored in, uh, uh, in Ireland, probably, uh, typically. Uh, and uh, um, there is actually litigation going on now between uh, Microsoft and the U.S., uh, in which uh, the U.S. government has said, well, you need to produce this information, and Microsoft has said, I'm sorry, that's stored in Ireland. You have to go get uh, uh, an MLAT order in Ireland for us to produce it. Uh, the U.S., as you might expect, uh, has said that's outrageous. You can't expect to do that. Uh, uh, and yet at the same time, I know that U.S. authorities have said for, uh, from time to time to my clients, uh, um, uh, you cannot respond to foreign government uh, discovery orders uh, in, in, in ordinary course, in the ordinary course, in the absence of an emergency, uh, without running the risk of being um, liable for contributing to espionage or otherwise violating uh, uh, U.S. law. So the U.S. has been having this both ways. I think perhaps increasingly it's going to be harder to. Uh, to have it both ways, but what you're saying, I think, is that you think that the uh, evolution of this issue is going to lead to more extraterritorial demands uh, on the part of uh, uh, even our closest allies. Well, it, it's a shame if it has to be that way. Um, what we would like is uh, an understanding, both with the Irish authorities and indeed with the, with the U.S., um, that would make it possible for service providers to cooperate with law enforcement, not just for metadata, but if necessary, also for content. But the plain basis for that is that there has to be a warrant which the uh, U.S. providers and the U.S. courts can respect without any uh, hesitation. And that's one of the reasons, by no means the main reason, but it's one of the reasons why I think we need to up our game when it comes to authorization and oversight. I thought there was a European warrant that would be recognized in at least Ireland. Well, um there is um, an MLAT with Ireland, and I think oh. there's some uh, work in progress towards uh, imp improving that. Um, but in terms of uh, does the UK law enforcement automatically have access to uh, stashes of data in Ireland, the answer is no. That's interesting because, uh, you know, I thought that the uh, arrival of satellite telephone communications – with ground stations that were only, you know, for all of Europe, there might be one ground station uh, in one European country, had driven uh, uh, Europe to recognize at least intercept orders uh, from uh, one country in another uh, because the only place you're going to be able to intercept those calls is at the ground station. Uh, um, so I, I, I find that interesting, but it, I, um, I, I agree with you that the U.S. and uh, European countries will probably have to arrive at some kind of arrangement, maybe just a... Uh, 
a, a vastly expedited MLAT process. Uh, maybe, although I think this would be highly controversial recognition of uh, uh, discovery orders from abroad. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, what does that mean for uh, uh, Russian demands? I, uh, I, I, would well, the UK be willing to say, well, it may seem hypocritical, but we're willing to seem hypocritical. You're not going to get that data without going through our MLAT process? No, I don't think it's hypocritical at all. I mean, I, <laughs> I can see that if we require extraterritoriality of the U.S., we, we, it would be quite wrong for us to resist the U.S. requiring it of us. Right. But I think unless you're a complete moral relativist, it is possible to distinguish the situation of a strong democratic country from a, a relatively lawless regime. And although the tech companies are, are, are keen to explain that they're global companies and that uh, anything they did for the U.K. they'd have to do for other countries as well, I'm not sure that in the long run that's a tenable position. I think there has to come a, a time when you stand up and say, well, we will recognize orders if they come from countries that have the following characteristics or if they are authorized in a manner that has the following characteristics. And if you don't meet that test, then uh, you can't expect to be respected across borders. Yeah, I, I, that works for the UK and Russia and the United States. I'm not sure it works for... Uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia and um, uh, Libya and uh, Turkey. Uh, there's an awful lot of gray uh, between uh, uh, the UK and Russia uh, and uh, uh, asking companies to make that call is, uh, I think, uh, implausible. Uh, uh, but, you know, an MLAT process that allowed the U.S. government to intervene to say, excuse me, but we're no longer confident sure. of the democratic values of this country and we aren't going to allow them to take sure. advantage of the expedited process would probably work. Yeah. I mean, whether you call it an MLAT process, I mean, if, it, if that is going to be expedited, it's going to have to be expedited pretty remarkably because I think the average time at the moment is nine or ten months for an MLAT request. Oh, it's, it's deeply as, as requests that are useful for, for, it's for evidence but not for intelligence. So, yeah, you're, you're quite right. I, I, for uh, urgent matters or for national security matters, uh, the MLAT process is, is hopeless. Uh, and uh, there have been mm -hmm. some efforts here to uh, find ways to uh, improve it uh, because everybody recognizes that in the long run, U.S. companies are going to pay the price for uh, the uh, the bad procedures of uh, the U.S. government, uh, uh, but for a variety of reasons having to do with the differences in parties and the like, uh, that that has not yet happened. Uh, um, well, this has been a terrific conversation. I, I promised that I'd cut it, uh, uh, cut you loose in, in half an hour, and we're a little bit over that. Uh, uh, any closing thoughts, or uh, as we usually offer our guests, uh, any uh, uh, upcoming events that you think our audience might be interested in attending, or papers? Uh, you know, you have another 400-page tome coming out soon. Uh, anything you'd like to tell our, uh, our listeners about? I would say this one will occupy them for a while. Um, you could follow me at Terra Watchdog, and uh, through that you'll find the website where you'll find the report. Uh, the next one I'm doing, I'm, I'm changing tack, and I, I shall be reporting at the end of this year on the subject of deportation with assurances, which is uh, can you send suspected terrorists uh, back to their countries of origin, uh, even when those countries routinely practice torture, uh, having obtained an assurance from the government of that country that uh, it won't torture your guy. A uh, very hot topic in the UK, a uh, very hot topic for UK relations with uh, with Europe. Uh, and again, I think uh, something I've, I've spoken to, to Americans about. Oh, that um, it's a hot it's topic there. here. It's all on my website. And um, I look forward to, to interacting with your listeners. And, and, and if I if I understand this right, you're doing all of this as a part-time job, right? You also practice law uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean... I, I have a I have a law practice. Let's just say it's smaller than it was. Um, <laughs> this is a uh, this is a, a, a an absolutely engrossing piece of public service that I've been lucky enough to be asked to do. And um, there will come a time when I really need to get back to uh, to the full time practice of law. But for for now, uh, I, I started life um, as a as an attorney in Washington D.C. I'd better not say the firm because it wasn't Steptoe and Johnson. <laughs> uh, but one thing uh, I've always admired about the U.S. is, uh, is the revolving door and the way that you can go off and 
do public service for four years, five years, come back to the firm, and in a way, that's uh, that's what I'm trying to replicate here in England. Yeah, that's it. It it, it is very exciting. Although when you come back to uh, uh, to your firm, you're reduced to expressing your views on podcasts that uh, you hope a few people are downloading. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a sad yeah. comeback. <laughs> well, as I say to everyone uh, when they leave government, uh, uh, the good news is you can finally say what you think, because the bad news is nobody cares. But David, everybody cares about your uh, uh, your remarks. Uh, uh, they, they were very thoughtful, and your report is really an excellent uh, um, sort of slightly different light shed on issues that we're struggling with here on a daily basis. So uh, I, I'm confident that your next report will be the same, and uh, we hope you'll come over here, and uh, if you do, we'll put you back on the podcast and uh, see if we can't get uh, uh, some of the think tanks in Washington to give you an opportunity to speak in more detail about this. I look forward to that. Thank you very much indeed for having me. All right. Thank you. Uh, and as a reminder to our listeners, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if you'd like to leave a message, you can do it by phone, 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 71 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by James Baker, the General Counsel of the FBI. And coming soon, we will have Rob Kanaki from uh, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, uh, Mike Casey and Paul Vigna of the uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, and Catherine Lotrianti will come back with a better eye than she has today uh, as well. Uh, and also on June 25, Steptoe is going to be hosting a free webinar called Digitizing Financial Services in Europe, which I think uh, our European listeners will be interested in. It's going to examine the business impact of digitizing financial services in Europe, uh, and we're going to have speakers from the European Commission and the financial industry, uh, as well as from um, uh, the legal profession. We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.